Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How you doing, Dan? We're going to get started. I'm make that laugh. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, all right. A lot of good energy, I love it, I love it. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. My name's Matt Kressel and I'm the co-host, thank you, I'm the co-host with Ellen Datlow who is uh, vacationing in China right now. Uh, So so we have uh, the marvelous Mercurio de Rivera, he's my co-host tonight. So, uh, you may not have heard, but we have two awesome readers tonight. Uh, James Morrow and Ken Liu are, uh, are with us tonight. So we're, pretty, we're pretty excited. Uh, so, uh, before we get started, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, the KGB Bar has been hosting this series for over a decade. And there's never a cover charge, and all that they ask is that you buy a drink, a hard or soft drink. Uh, so please uh, buy a drink and tip your bartenders and uh, stay hydrated. Um, also, just a couple uh, quick announcements about uh, upcoming readers. Next month, May 20th, Wesley Chu and Nicole Corner Stace. June 17th, Dale Bailey and Simon Strancis. July 15th, Jeffrey Ford, David Edison. August 19th, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise. September, September 16th, Lawrence Connolly and Tom Monteleone. October, come on, guys, you gotta get more excited than that. All right, all right. October 21st, Nathan Ballingard and Fran Wild. All right, all right. I, I saw Fran earlier. Where is Fran? There she is. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. So, uh, yeah, we got an awesome lineup. Oh, and uh, also, um, we have Word Bookstore in the back. A Molly Wave, yay, that's by the door. So by the exit sign, there's a little uh, table there. Molly's selling books, and uh, she has um, books. They, they have uh, Galapagos Regained by James Morrow, and uh, they have... Um, what is it, the Madonna and the Spaceship? Was that the other? Starship. Starship, excuse me, Madonna and the Starship, and also uh, Ken Liu's uh, Grace of Kings as well. So, uh, yeah, it, we're gonna, the, Ken's gonna read first, and then uh, we'll take a 15 minute break. So, buy a book, bring them up, have the authors sign them, buy a drink, and then we'll come back uh, again with the next reader. All right, so uh, our first reader tonight is, is Ken Liu. Ken is the author and translator of speculative fiction as well as a lawyer and programmer, a winner of the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards, 
He's been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Analog, Clark's World, Lightspeed, and Strange Horizons, among other places. His novel, The Grace of Kings, is out now from Saga Press. Here's Ken Liu. Thank you. All right, so we'll see. Okay, can you guys hear me? Okay, all right. So this is going to be fun. Um, so I'm going to read two excerpts from my novel um, because um, the novel is 600 pages long, so I don't think I can read the whole thing to you. Um, so I will, I'll set it up for you so you know what's going to happen. Okay, so um, the novel is an epic fantasy, uh, but it's a little bit unusual in that it's really more like steampunk with Asian flavors, which I call soak punk. Um, <laughs> Now it's not actually um, it's not actually East Asia because I, I try to take a setting that's inspired by East Asia but actually isn't East Asia. It's a set of islands, um, and from time immemorial, the islands have been dividing into seven separate kingdoms. And recently, um, one of the kingdoms, Zana, forcefully united, unified all of the other kingdoms into one great empire. And so as the story starts, we follow uh, one of the young men who will become important later on in the novel um, as he tries to um, come to terms with what it means to live under an imperial system. Okay, So that's the first excerpt. In the city of Zudi, many stories were told about Kunigaru. The young man was the son of, a simple, of simple farmers who had big hopes for their children to move up in the world hopes that Cooney somehow dashed again and again. Oh, as a boy, Cooney had shown hints of brilliance. He could read and write 300 logograms before he had turned five. Cooney's mother, Nari, thanked Kana and Rapa every day and couldn't stop telling all her friends how brilliant her little boy was. Thinking that the child had a future as a letterman who could bring honor to the family, Cooney's father, Faiso, sent him at a great expense to study at the private academy of Tumil Loing, a local scholar of great renown, who had served the king of Kokuru as the minister of grains before the unification. Bakuni and his friend Rinkoda preferred to skip school whenever they could and go fishing. When he was caught, Kuni would apologize eloquently and profusely, convincing Master Loing that he was truly contrite and had learned his lesson. But soon he would be back to devising pranks with Rin and talking back at his teacher, questioning his explanation of the classics and pointing out errors in his reasoning until Master Loing finally ran out of patience and expelled him. And poor Rinkoda too, for always following Kuni's lead. That was just fine with Kuni. He was a good drinker, talker, and brawler, and soon became close to all sorts of disreputable <laughs> characters in Zudi. Thieves, gangsters, tax collectors, Xana soldiers from the garrison, girls from the indigo houses, wealthy young men who had nothing better to do than stand around all day on street corners looking for trouble. As long as you breathed, had money to buy him a drink, and enjoyed dirty jokes and gossip, Kunigaru was your friend. The Garu family tried to steer the young man into gainful employment. Kado, Kuni's elder brother, demonstrated an early instinct for business and became a merchant of women's dresses. He hired Kuni as a clerk, but Kuni professed a disdain for bowing to customers and laughing at their stupid jokes. Well, who doesn't, right? And finally, after Cooney tried to implement a harebrained scheme of hiring girls from the indigo houses as models for dresses, Kado had no choice but to fire him. 
It would have boosted sales, Cooney said. <laughs> After the wealthy men saw the dresses on their favorite mistresses, they surely want to buy them for their wives. <laughs> have you no concern for the reputation of your family? Kado chased Cooney into the streets, wielding a measuring roar. By the time Cooney was 17, his father had had enough of the idling young men coming home every night drunk and asking for dinner. He locked him out of the house and told him to find somewhere else to stay and ruminate on how he was wasting his life and breaking his mother's heart. Nari cried and cried and went to Kana and Rapa's temple every day, praying for the goddesses to set her baby on the right path. Reluctantly, Kado Garu took pity on his little brother and took him back in. Kado's generosity, however, was not shared by his wife, Tete. She took to serving dinner early, long before Kuni came home, and when she heard the sound of the steps in the entrance hall, Tete would bang empty pots loudly in the sink, indicating that there was no more food to be had. Cooney quickly got the hint. Though he had thick skin, well, he had to when he hung out with the sort of friends he made, he was humiliated that his sister-in-law thought of him as only a mouth that she didn't want to feed. He moved out and slept on the floor mats in the houses of his friends, roaming from house to house as he wore out his welcome. He moved a lot. <laughs> okay, so next scene. <clears throat> Kunigaru stumbled from the splendid urn on unsteady legs, but he wasn't really drunk yet. Since it was early in the afternoon, his closest friends were still at work. He decided that he would kill some time by wandering the main street markets of Zudi. Though Zudi was a small city, the unification had nonetheless changed its complexion substantially. Master Lowing had lectured the boys about the changes disdainfully, lamenting that his students couldn't appreciate the virtues of the simpler Zudi of his youth. But since this new Zudi was all Kuni had ever known, he made up his own mind about it. Emperor Mapadere, in a bid to keep the Otiro nobos from plotting rebellion in their ancestral domains, stripped them of any real power and left them only with empty titles. But that wasn't enough. The emperor also divided the noble families and forced some members to relocate to distant parts of the empire. For example, a Kokuru count's eldest son might be ordered to resettle, taking servants, mistresses, wives, cooks, and guards all the way to Wolf's Paw, away in the old territories of Gan. And again, Duke's clan side branches might be told to pack themselves up and move to a city in Rui. This way, even if the hot-blooded younger nobles wanted to make trouble, they would have no influence with the local elites and could inspire no sympathy in the local populace to join their cause. The emperor did the same with many of the surrendered soldiers and their families from the six conquered states. While the resettlement policy was very unpopular with the nobles, it did have the benefit of enriching the lives of the ordinary folk of the islands of Dara. The Resetto nobles craved foods and clothes from their homelands, and merchants traveled all over Dara, transporting products that seemed exotic to the local populace but were eagerly purchased by the exiled nobles who yearned for a hint of home and their old ways of life. In this manner, the scattered nobles became teachers of taste for the commoners, who learned to be more cosmopolitan and ecumenical. And thus, Zudi played host to exiled noble families from all over Dara, and they filled it with new customs, new dishes, and new dialects and words that had never before been heard in the city's sleepy markets and sedate tea houses. So if you were going to give marks for Emperor Mapadere's performance as administrator, Kuni thought, the improvement in the diversity of Zudi's markets definitely had to be counted as a positive. The streets were filled with vendors selling all manners of novelties from across Dara. For example, there are bamboo copters from Amu, which are ethereal toys with revolving blades at the end of a stick that could be spun rapidly until the contraption took off into the air like a tiny dragonfly. 
They're living paper people from Vasa. The paper cutouts would dance and leap like veiled dancers on a tiny stage when you rub the glass rod in the ceiling with a silk, silk cloth. Magic calculators from Han, wooden mazes with tiny doors at every branch that flipped as marbles rolled through them, and a skilled operator could use them to compute sums. There are iron puppets from Rima, intricate mechanical toys that walk down an incline slope on their own power, and so on and so forth. Bakuni paid the most attention to the food. He loved the fried lamb strips native to the Zana home islands, especially the hot and spicy variety from Dasu. He found the delicate raw fish served by the merchants from Wolf's Paw delightful. It went especially well with mango liquor and a dash of hot mustard growing in Fasa's tiny spice estates nestled in the deep shades of the Shinani Mountains. He salivated so much as he admired the snacks on display from the various vendors that he had to swallow a few times. He had a grand total of two copper pieces in his pocket, not even enough for a string of sugar-coated crab apples. Well, I really should be watching my weight anyway, he said to himself, and Sally petted his beer belly. He wasn't getting much exercise these days, but with all the partying and drinking he was going through. He sighed and was just about to leave the market to find a quiet spot for a nap when a loud argument attracted his attention. Sir, please don't take him, an old woman begged an imperial soldier. She was dressed in the traditional garb of the Zana peasant, full of knotted tassels and the colorful geometric patches that were supposed to be symbols for good luck and prosperity, though the only people who wore them had neither. He's only 15, and he's my youngest son. My eldest is already working in the mausoleum. The law say that the last child can stay with me. The complexion of the old woman and her son was paler than most of the people in Kokuru, but this doesn't, didn't mean much by itself. Though people from the various parts of Dara differed in their physical features, there had always been some steady migration and mixing of peoples, a process accelerated after the unification. And the people of the various Tyrol states had always cared much more about cultural and linguistic differences than mere appearance. Still, given the woman's Zana garb and accent, it was clear she was not a native of Kokuru. She was a long way from home, Kuni thought, probably the widow of a Zana soldier stranded here after the unification. Since the kite rider's assassination attempt seven years ago, Zudi had remained heavily garrisoned. The emperor's men never managed to find the rider, but they did imprison and execute many of Zudi's citizens on flimsy evidence and continue to rule Zudi with an extra level of harshness. At least the emperor's agents administered the laws without any favoritism. The poor from Zana were treated just like the poor of the conquered states. I've asked you for the birth certificates of the two boys, and you've produced nothing. The soldier brushed away the woman's pleading fingers impatiently. His accent indicated that he was from Zana as well. The man was bloated and flabby, a bureaucrat more than a fighting man, and he stared at the youth standing next to the old woman with a cold smirk, daring the young man to do something rash. Cooney knew his kind well. The man had probably dodged out of having to fight during the Unification Wars and then bribed his way into a commission in the Zana army as soon as peace had been declared so that he could get assigned to one of the conquered territories as a corvée administrator. Uh, by the way, corvée is a real word. Um, it means um, the kind of feudal taxes um, exacted um, on the subjects in the form of labor. So you pay a corvée as a duty you owe to your lord um, where you have to provide free labor, um, usually infrastructure projects. It was his job to raise up the local quota of able-bodied men to work on one of the emperor's grand infrastructure projects. It was a position with a little bit of power, but a lot of room for abuse. It was also very lucrative. Families who didn't want to see their sons conscripted were willing to pay a high, high price. 
I know wily women like you, the man went on. I think the story about your eldest is a complete fabrication to get out of having to pay your fair share for the construction of a suitable palace for the afterlife of his imperial majesty, the beloved Emperor Mapadari. May he never leave us. May he never leave us. But I'm telling you the truth, sir, the woman tried flattery. You're wise and brave, and I know you will take pity on me. It's not pity you need, the Corvée administrator said. If you can't produce the documents, the documents are at the magistracy back home in Rui. Well, we're not in Rui now, are we? And don't interrupt me. I'm giving you the choice to pay a prosperity tax eh, eh, so that we can forget this unpleasantness. But since you're not willing, I will have to. I'm willing, sir. I'm willing. But you have to give me time. Business has not been good. I need time. I told you not to interrupt me. The man lifted his hand and slapped the old woman across her face. The young man standing next to her lunged at him, but the old woman grabbed her son's arm and tried to position herself between the administrator and her son. Please, please forgive my foolish son. You can hit me again for his faults. <laughs> the administrator laughed and spat at her. The old woman's face trembled with unspeakable sorrow. It brought to Kuni's mind the face of his own mother, Nari, and the times when she would berate him for not making more of his own life. The drunken stupor evaporated. How much is this prosperity tax? Cooney sauntered up to the three of them. Other pedestrians gave them a white berth. No one wanted to draw the attention of the Corvée administrator. The man eyed Cooney Garu, beer belly, ingratiating smile, face still red with drink, and unkempt, wrinkled clothes, and decided that he was no threat. Twenty-five pieces of silver, and what's that to you? Are you volunteering to take the boy's place on the Corvée? Cooney's father, Faisal Garu, had paid off Corvée Administrator after Corvée Administrator, and he did have the documents to show that Cooney was exempt. Cooney also wasn't afraid of the man. He was a pretty good street brawler and thought he could acquit himself well if they, if they came to blows. But this was a situation that called for some finesse, not force. I'm a Finn Crucadori, he said. Now, the Crucadoris owned Zudi's largest jewelry store, and Finn, the eldest son, had once tried to turn Cooney and his friends into the constables for disturbing the peace after Cooney humiliated him in a game of high-stakes dice. Finn's father was also known for being super stingy and never spared a copper for any charity, but his son had a reputation as a spendthrift. And I like nothing more than money. Well, then you should hold on to it and stay out of other people's business, said the administrator. Cooney nodded like a chicken pecking in the dirt. Sage advice, sir, sage. Then he spread his hands helplessly. But this old woman is a friend of my cook's mother-in-law's neighbor. Now, if she tells her friend, who tells her neighbor, who tells her daughter, who tells her husband, whom I then not cooked my favorite dish, braised eel with duck eggs. The administrator's head spun as he tried to follow this story that was going nowhere. Stop your endless prattle. Are you going to pay for her or not? Yes, yes, oh sure, you will swear you have not had real food until you've tasted this braised eel. It is as smooth as a mouthful of jade. And the duck eggs, oh my. As Cooney pattered on to the consternation of the Zana administrator, he gestured at a waitress at the restaurant by the side of the road. The waitress, who knew perfectly well who Cooney really was, tried to keep from smiling as she handed him paper and brush. Now, uh, how much did you say the tax was? Twenty-five? How about a little bit of a discount, eh? After all, I introduced you to the wonders of the braised eel. How about twenty? Cooney wrote out a note that entitled the holder to redeem it at the Crucadori family house, house office for twenty silver pieces. 
he signed the note to flourish and admired his own forgery. And then he inked the seal that he carried just for such occasions. It was an old seal and very decrepit, and so the impression came out in a jumble, and you could read anything you want into, into it. <laughs> and pressed the seal against the paper. He sighed and handed the paper over reluctantly. There you go. Just go over to my family and present it to the doorman when you have time. The servant will bring you money right away. Why, Master Krukadori? The administrator was all smiles and politeness when he saw the figure on the paper. A foolish and rich man like this Finn Krukadori was the best kind of local gentry to cultivate. I'm always glad to make a new friend. Why don't we go and have a drink together? I thought you'd never ask, Kuni said, and slapped the imperial bureaucrat's shoulder happily. I didn't bring any cash with me, though. Um, I'm just out to get some air. So next time I'll invite you home for that braised eel. But this time maybe I can borrow some. No problem, no problem at all. What are friends for? As they walked away, Cooney stole a glance back at the old woman. She stood, mute and frozen, her mouth open and her eyes wide. Cooney thought she was probably too surprised and grateful to speak. And once more, he was reminded of his mother. He blinked to clear his suddenly warm eyes, winked at her in reassurance, and turned around once more to joke with the Corvée administrator. The woman's son gently shook her by the shoulder. Ma, let's get going. We should leave town before that pig changes his mind. The old woman seemed to waken from a dream. Young man, she mumbled after the retreating figure of Kunigaru. You may, be la you may act lazy and foolish, but I have seen your heart. A bright and tenacious flower will not bloom in obscurity. But Kuni was too far away to hear her. So that's our introduction to Kuni. Um, it gives you a little bit of insight into what sort of character he is. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to read a little, one more excerpt for you in honor of today's special date. Um, you'll see why when I, once I get to it. Um, a little bit of a background. One, I used to be a tax lawyer, so I'm really, <laughs> so I'm actually really into the whole tax thing, okay? Uh, more of an income tax guy, not so much of a, a that guy. Um, so so this, this book, The Grace of Kings, definitely has some of the best passages discussing taxes you will ever read anywhere. And, and, but after reading the excerpt, you will be amazed. I guarantee you, you will be like, taxes are awesome. You will all sign up for tax law. Okay. Um, the second bit is, um, so after we meet Cooney at the beginning there, um, we find out lots of things happen in a couple hundred pages. But, uh, but basically, Cooney ends up in, in a rebellion against the empire, and he becomes a duke by, um, by acclamation, uh, sort of by popular claim. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people basically think he's wonderful and, and declare him to be a duke, and he becomes a duke that way, um, which is not really the way you're supposed to do things. So he's a little unorthodox, um, and, uh, and we'll see how this unorthodoxy plays out. <clears throat> Lord Garu, we need to talk about our finances, Kogo Yalu said. Kuni was both amused and annoyed whenever he heard his old friends address him as Lord Garu. Sure, he liked hearing it from former imperial constables and soldiers who used to harass him and his friends, but it sounded wrong coming from someone like Kogo, who he always thought of as an older brother. And there was no hint of joking in Kogo's tone either. He was bowing slightly, his face turned to Garu's feet. Cut that Lord Garu bit out, will ya? We're old friends, but you're acting like a stranger. We are old friends, Kogo said, but men have roles and masks that they wear, and these have a reality of their own. Authority is a delicate thing, and it must be carefully cultivated by proper ritual and action from the governing and the governed alike. 
Pogsy, I haven't even had a single drink yet today. It's much too early for your philosophy lessons. Kogel sighed and smiled to himself. Kuni's lack of respect for conventions was both why he liked following Garu and was afraid of where it would all lead. He wanted to help the young men, who indeed seemed like a fledgling ego. Kuni, people will not take you seriously if they see your old friends treat you like an equal. It will confuse them. An actor playing a king on stage will make the audience believe that he really is king when all his fellow players behave as if, as he, as if he were king and follow the proper rights. But if one of the troop winks at the audience, the illusion is broken. You're the Duke of Zudi now, and it's best if you make it clear that you're in charge no matter who you're talking to. Kuni nodded reluctantly. All right, you can call me Lord Garu in front of other people, but you're still Cogsy. I, I can't call you Minister Yellow and, and keep a straight face. Now don't object, you know I get confused with new names. Kogo shook his head but decided to let the matter drop. The finances, Lord Garu. What about them? While the money we seize from the Imperial Treasury of Zudi has been exhausted, much of it was sent to Siruza when King Thufi called for funds for the, for the Kurima Shigen Expeditionary Force. The remainder has been spent to pay the soldiers' wages and to, well, fund street parties and free food and clothes for the people of Zudi pursuant to your orders. And I'm guessing that you're about to tell me that the taxes aren't coming fast enough? Lord Garu, your generosity is unmatched. You've abolished the multitude of heavy imperial imposts, and the new taxes I drafted up at your request are quite fair and light. However, we have not been able to collect much on them. The businesses of Zudi are jittery. They aren't sure that the rebels will win, and if the empire comes back, they think any taxes paid to you will be wasted. And so they are, mm, dodging. Kuni scratches head. The soldiers will have to be paid, of course, and I haven't forgotten your salary and everyone else who followed me through all the difficult times. I don't want to push the compliance issue too much, though. Nothing gets people more riled up than overzealous tax collectors. Lord Garu is very wise, but I have a proposal. Let's hear it. Well, take the restaurant business as an example. The way bars and eateries have been able to avoid paying their full share is by keeping two sets of books. They might taking 150 silver pieces a night, but the books they show us contain only entries for 50. We have to find a way to collect on the hidden entries. And just how do you propose to do this? I suggest that you announce the establishment of a new lottery game to reward the lucky and free citizens of Zudi. I fail to see how this is related to the issue of tax dodging. It is linked, but only indirectly, as all money is fungible. That, that's your brilliant idea? Well, I have to offer a huge prize for the lottery to get enough people interested. And there are plenty of gambling, bar gambling barters in the city, parlors in the city already. How can we compete? No, no, no. The lottery is only a cover for something better. You see, people will not be purchasing their lottery tickets directly. Instead, they'll get them only when shopping as a kind of receipt. For each silver piece they spend, they obtain from the vendor a lottery ticket for free. The more they spend shopping, the more tickets they get. And where do the vendors get their tickets? They have to purchase them from us. Kuni thought about this. The scheme seemed preposterous and yet effective. Cogsy, you rascal! Kuni slapped him on the back. Under this scheme, the vendors won't be able to cook the books because their own customers will be hounding them for the right number of lottery tickets based on what they spend. And since the businesses have to buy the lottery tickets from us, they'll end up paying us fees in proportion to their real revenues. Just the way taxes are supposed to work. 
you, you've just turned every customer in Zudi into a tax collector for us. Cooney imagined the look on Widow Wasu's face when she realized that she could no longer dodge his taxes and almost felt sorry, almost. Have you no shame? I only learn from the best. When the Lord is an honorable bandit, then the follower must come up with unconventional means to achieve his Lord's goals. Kogo and Kuni laughed together. So. so just let me, let me say a few more things. So um, I hope you enjoy that. Um, the, the book is not all light and fun. Um, there, there are big battles, and there are, um, you know, very sad parts. Um, it is, it is an epic um, in the in the old sense. Um, I, I, I think, I think, I hope that you guys will like it. Readers seem to to enjoy it so far. Uh, it's a little unusual for an epic fantasy because uh, the settings is is unusual, and the story is sort of a reimagining of a set of old Chinese um, historical romances. But I think the combination. Uh, is interesting and delightful. And uh, as you can probably tell, I try to put a lot of things I enjoy into the book, so it's fun. <laughs> I had super fun writing it, and, and I hope that comes across. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ken, that was delightful. We're, we're gonna take a 10 or 15 minute break. So uh, as I said earlier, buy a drink. Books are for sale in the back. Buy a book, bring them up, uh, get them signed, and we'll be, we'll be back in about 10 minutes or so. Okay, folks, we're going to get started. All right, folks. All right, folks. Ready to get started? Here we go. Here we go. We are ready to get started, folks. Here we go. Brace yourselves. All right, I am David Mercurio Rivera, subbing for Ellen Datlow. Who is Ellen is currently traveling to China. So I want to thank Matt and Ellen for letting me sub today. So it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our second reader, James Morrow. James, James Morrow, according to the New York Times, is a, quote, a wildly imaginative and generous novelist who plays hilarious games with grand ideas, close quote. His latest effort, Galapagos Regained, follows in this brain-teasing tradition, as did its predecessors, The Last Witchfinder and The Philosopher's Apprentice. A two-time recipient of both the World Fantasy and Nebula Awards, Morrow is presently working on a loopy historical epic in which Lazarus time travels to AD 325, intending to sway the outcome of the Council of Nikai. Ladies and gentlemen, James Morrow. Thank you. Thank you, David. Do, do we have, uh, yeah, we've got juice. Well, my novel, unlike Grace of Kings, is only 473 pages long. So, so I am going to read the entire narrative tonight. It'll be a slightly longer event than normally occurs here. 
And we're going to lock the door to encourage you to, <laughs> to stay. Uh, before I forget, an editor of mine is in the audience, uh, William Friedman, and he's brought along a couple of uh, anthologies that he edited, the title being Age of Certainty. And uh, among the offerings in those books is a story of mine called The Second Coming of Charles Darwin, which is arguably the prototype for Galapagos Regained. The episodes I've selected tonight from Galapagos Regain occur fairly late in the novel, so I'm going to have to set up the situation. My protagonist is Chloe Bathurst, a Victorian actress turned explorer who has re recently traveled across the South American continent, first by riverboat and then via a Jules Verdean flying machine. So there's a kind of a whiff of steampunk about, about this book. She's bound for the Galapagos Archipelago. Initially, my heroine's goal was to collect specimens that illustrate Darwin's theory of natural selection so she can enter and win the great God contest. It's being sponsored back in Oxford by the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society 10,000 pounds to the first petitioner who can prove or disprove the existence of a supreme being. But eventually, Chloe's quest transmutes into something rather more noble. During her stay in the Brazilian river city of Manaus, she learns that the Church of England has dispatched a gang of convicts to Galapagos so they can cleanse it of giant tortoises, marine iguanas, <laughs> rare finches, and other evidence that might corroborate Darwinian atheism. So to, to thwart this cruel and dastardly plot, my heroine decides to masquerade as a prophetess sent by God to the Huancabamba Indians of Peru. <laughs> Are you, are you following all this? Okay. The scene, okay, so the, the scene opens shortly after Chloe and six catechized Wonkabambas have reached Charles Isle, which is the southernmost formation in the, uh, in, in, the, in the Galapagos archipelago. They've gotten there on a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark, <laughs> along with two other members of the original expedition, a castaway named Solange Kirsop and a sailor named Ralph Dartworthy. For some while, Chloe and Solange embraced their respective giant tortoises, <laughs> watched over by the Indians called Cuniche and Nitopare. And they would have continued their devotions had the other masquerade troopers not arrived. Ralph was delighted to find Charles Isle so fecund. Evidently, we've gained Galapagos with time to spare. But before he could expand on this sentiment, six women came striding across the lava field, clothed in the sorts of calico gowns favored by the wives of North American pioneers, they were presumably citizens of Oren Egwart's famous experimental religious community, their sunburnt faces evoking the indigenous marine iguanas, each complexion tinted a different shade of red. The Supreme Emperor sends you his howdy-do, 
said the maroon, said the maroon pioneer addressing Ralph. An hour ago, Arn and the rest of us watched you drop your anchor in the bay. Lovely ladies, allow me to introduce our company, said Ralph. I am Professor Edward Cabot, instructor in anthropology at King's College and master of the good ship Covenant out of Porto Eten. My fellow British citizens include the aerialist Bianca Quinn, palsied last year in a fall but now fully recovered, and Lady Omega, an English mystic who healed Miss Quinn's broken back. Our Peruvian natives count themselves amongst Lady Omega's followers. Rebecca Eggwar at your service, said the maroon pioneer, then introduced, indicated her five companions and gave their names, the burgundy woman being Sarah, the scarlet Ruth, the strawberry Naomi, the rose Hagar, and the coral Miriam. Aaron's other wives are back in minor Zion. She gathered, she gestured towards the volcano over yonder, beyond Mount Paja. His other wives, said Solange, you mean you're all married to Mr. Eggward? Happily, said Sarah. <laughs> On balance, said the pregnant Ruth. Truly, truly happily, said Naomi, likewise in a gravid state. I thought Mr. Eggward was a Christian, not a Persian said Solange. You're darn tootin' he's a Christian, Rebecca replied, but like many a Latter-day Saint, Oren practices the venerable Bible custom of plural marriage. If it were good enough for David and Solomon, he says, it's good enough for me. At the moment, at the moment, he's on top with nine wives, whereas our associate emperor and our assistant emperor ain't got but six. Six altogether, said Solange. A piece, answered Rebecca. If Mr. Egwart proposes marriage to me, I shall refuse, said Solange. I would never share my husband with another woman, much less a harem. <laughs> we ain't no harem, said Rebecca indignantly. Ah, then you're a seraglio, said Solange. <laughs> that, that's right, said Mary emphatically. <laughs> A seraglio, which would make you all sultanas, noted Chloe. Exactly, said Rebecca. <laughs> Chloe told herself it didn't matter how many wives the local emperors possessed, as long as they helped her foil the plot against the Galapagos fauna. Ralph said, good ladies, we seek word of HMS Antares and her illustrious passenger, the Reverend Mr. Halloborn, who has untoward designs on this archipelago. We know all about the great Winnowin, said Rebecca. The way Oren heard it from the governor, last year a couple of parsons over in England took to doing some serious theologizing and decided these islands was once the devil's playground. Mrs. Egward, do you think it possible the Reverend Halliborn has arrived and the slaughter already begun? asked Chloe. Heck no, they wouldn't do no harrowing without Oren say so. He's the only supreme emperor in these here parts. An immense serenity spread through Chloe. No slaughter, not yet. We should like to meet your husband. Then it will come to pass, said Rebecca. As the tropical breeze wafted across Charles Isle, raising clouds of ash that rode the sticky air like phantom wasps, 
Orrin Egwart's wives led Chloe and her companions across a fissured basin littered with pumice and broken by patches of anemic pumpkins, weary turnips, and feeble sweet potatoes. Men in flaxen shirts and women in cotton bonnets ambled amongst the crops, tending them with rakes and watering cans. Beyond the gardens lay the town of Minor Zion, and minor it was indeed, a cluster of forlorn shacks with thatched roofs and clinker walls facing a plaza that, being planted with orchids and lilies, was apparently intended to be mistaken for a village green, though the flowers did no more to mitigate the general bleakness than would a nosegay tossed upon a slag heap. Rebecca directed her charges into the vicinity of Emperor Oren Egwart, a bony and angular man wearing a straw hat and red homespun shirt, a braided black beard swaying from his jaw. He lay socketed in a hammock, suspended from the porch roof of the nearest hovel, sipping water from a silver goblet whilst reveling in the breeze generated by a triad of palm leaf fans, the motive power being, in each case, a wife. <laughs> After introducing this second set of sultanas, Constance, Charity, and the pregnant Martha, Rebecca presented the troopers as Professor Cabot, anthropologist, Lady Omega, faith healer, and Miss Quinn, her beneficiary, all of them interesting and harmless English folk, recently arrived from Peru on that big boat anchored in the bay. Welcome to Domtopia. Oren Egwart swept a spindly arm east to west in a gesture encompassing the whole island. I am master of all I survey. A bright smile broke through his beard. Thou hast comely wives, Professor. They aren't my wives, said Ralph. Did I hear you correctly? Duntopia, not utopia? Dun, the dullest of all possible colors, said Egwart, <laughs> nodding. Shall I tell you what's wrong with most communities built from scratch? They strive for perfection, that's what. They go a-whoring after excellence. Therein lies a recipe for frustration, wouldn't you agree? I believe I follow your logic, said Ralph. Here in Minor Zion, we don't eschew ambition. We fight it tooth and claw. We don't avoid mediocrity. We practice it. <laughs> I dare say that during the past 10 years, we've achieved the by Jiminy pinnacle of diminished expectations. <laughs> Egwart clapped his hands. Cleave wife Rebecca, our visitors look parched. The maroon pioneer disappeared into the hovel, returning with a, an earthenware jug and four tin cups. Shortly after I decided to let black-minded folks settle on my island, the emperor continued, I started casting around for a religion that harmonized with my personal philosophy. Unless your experimental community's got the Lord on its side, chaos and anarchy will soon come a-calling. He flourished a leather-browned volume titled The Book of Mormon. <laughs> right. And then one day, 
I stumbled on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints cooked up a quarter century ago by a confidence man with the auspiciously lackluster name of Joseph Smith. Re Rebecca decanted the water, providing, providing each of her English guests with a full tin cup, then passed the fourth cup to Ascobiche, instructing him to share it with his fellow Peruvians. After Joseph Smith died, the Latter-day Saints started splintering, said Egbert. The Prairie Saints stayed in the Midwest. The Rocky Mountain Saints followed Brigham Young into Utah Territory. And the Galapagos Saints, that is myself, the lesser emperors, and our wives, we come here. Ever read the Book of Mormon? <laughs> My tastes run more to Omar Khayyam, said Ralph. <laughs> At a nod from her husband, Rebecca refilled Egwart's goblet, whereupon he began describing how the Latter-day Saints' sacred text had been set down centuries earlier by Mormon, a semi-divine personage who spent his life listening to ghostly prophets and spectral historians, their preoccupation being the immigrant Jews of the New World. Eventually, Mormon etched these sundry revelations onto gold plates in a language long since chewed to oblivion by the teeth of time. Then came the momentous autumn of 1823 when the angel Moroni led Smith to a New York mountain, Kumara, where all 15 plates lay buried. Though not illiterate man, Smith had little trouble deciphering the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, and his friends were happy to act as scribes while he translated the plates aloud. And what a wonderfully benumbing story they tell, said Egwart. Page after page of transplanted Hebrews spouting Jeremiah's encountering Jesus and fighting epic battles. Show me a more violent book on the face of the earth and I'll by God eat it. <laughs> Chloe winced internally, disoriented by the resemblance between the Latter-day Saints' sacred text and her lost 13th tribe scenario. The question, of course, was whether this coincidence would give the lie to her masquerade or provide it with additional credence. Egwort deposited the Book of Mormon in Ralph's hands. I promise you, Professor, excepting for some lines swiped from the Gospels, there ain't a single verse in herein a man might call galvanizing, uplifting, or edifying. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Take the test. Opening the volume at random, Ralph read, And it came to pass that a long time passed away, and the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard, that we may labor in the vineyard. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and also the servant went down into the vineyard to labor. And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Behold, look here, behold the tree. Jacob chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Mormon ain't let me down yet, <laughs> said Egwart breathlessly. Ralph passed the Book of Mormon to Solange, who cracked the spine, shut her eyes, and set a her finger on a verse. Wherein all things which are good cometh of God, she read, and that which is evil cometh of the devil, for the devil is an enemy unto God and fighteth against him continually and inviteth and enticeth to sin and to do that which is evil continually. 
Moroni, chapter 6, verse 12. <laughs> See what I mean, said Egwort. It's as if Mormon done writ the whole thing with Duntopia in mind. <laughs> Solange returned the volume to the emperor. How clever of Smith to realizeth that reformed Egyptian should be renderedeth in the English of King James the first. <laughs> I'm confused, said, said Ralph. You hold Smith's cult insipid, yet you've brought it to these shores in toto. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ain't no cult professor said Egwort in a reproving tone. We're the most accurate edition of Christianity, yet vouchsafe the human race. Just because a revelation is tedious and tiresome, that don't make it false. The more I read these stultifying stories, the more convinced I become that the author enjoyed intimate spiritual relations with the Lord God Jehovah himself. It would have been easy as pie for Smith to hire some fancy poet to fix up his book, toss it in glittery words and highfalutin phrases, but our prophet done kept the sentences just the way they come a-gushing from his mouth, which for my money proves their authenticity. <laughs> now, I assume you didn't sail all the way from Peru out of any special hankering to join our church, but you're welcome to do so anyway. Likewise... <laughs> Likewise, your wives and brownie slaves, providing everybody's willing to swear an oath to me. These women aren't my wives, Ralph reminded their host. The Indians aren't my slaves, he added. When we spotted your vessel this afternoon, said Egwort, Rebecca and Naomi took to speculating it might be the Reverend Mr. Halliborn's brig. But then I realized that couldn't be true, not such a queer-looking thing. If I didn't know better, I'd say that fat boat of yours was the Ark of Noah, rigged for ocean travel. So what sort of ship is the Covenant? The Ark of Noah, said Ralph. <laughs> rigged for ocean travel, said Salon. <laughs> Here in Dontopia, we don't make jokes at the Supreme Emperor's expense, said Egwort. These brownies, as you call them, hail from a race living on the Rio Jaquetepec direct descendants of Jacob's forgotten son, Serug, said Ralph. Two millennia ago, the Saragites boarded Noah's Ark and journeyed from the Near East to South America, hoping to find a new Canaan. In other words, Your Excellency, you are hosting a delegation from the lost 13th tribe of Israel. You just said a mouthful, Egwort noted. I'm aware of that. If this Saragite exodus really happened, it would be in the Book of Mormon. Evidently, Smith lost track of a gold plate or two, said Ralph. <laughs> a retort Chloe thought rather resourceful. The emperor frowns, apparently wondering whether to reject Professor Cabot's narrative as a hoax or embrace it as a missing chapter from Smith's epiphany. These Indians are Jewish, he said at last, I've always appreciated Jews. In that respect, I'm rather like God. <laughs> After putting down roots near Porto Eten, Ralph continued, the Saragites set about guarding the covenant, performing that task so faithfully that God gifted them with a prophet, the woman in white who stands before you. Languidly, Egwort extricated himself from his hammock and hooking his 
thumbs under his latex braces, swaggered up to Chloe. You fancy yourself a prophet? In the crucible of my bones, all truths are fused, she said, using the voice she devised for the wraith in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. <laughs> Dust becoming clay, clay becoming flesh, flesh becoming spirit, myriad orbs of vision lie embedded in my being. I am Lady Omega of the Ten Thousand Eyes. Here in Dontopia, said Egbert, we don't take kindly to visitors holding themselves superior to the Supreme Emperor. <laughs> Before the Almighty, all creatures stand as equals, be they emperors or indigents, prophets or pariahs, caliphs or outcasts, said Chloe. Rest assured, Your Excellency, I did not come to imperil your earthly kingdom. Egwort issued a home of satisfaction, leavened with skepticism, then strutted up to Solange. If you're not the professor's wife, then who are you? Bianca Quinn, aerialist, born in Tunbridge Wells, but raised in the West Indies, Solange replied. Eventually, I ended up working for a circus in Lima. During my last performance, I fell 30 feet to the ground. I feared I would never walk again, much less on a tightrope but then my friends bore me by donkey cart to Lady Omega, who laid a hand on my splintered spine, and I was healed. The emperor clucked his tongue, then marched back and forth before the Indians, like a Turkish general reviewing his janissaries. Lost 13th tribe, you say, keepers of the ark. With God's guidance, we sailed the holy Ark across the sea, recited Kuniche, casting a beatific smile on Chloe. Lady Omega has forbidden us to eat our enemy's ashes, said Nitopura. Lady Omega taught us not to shrink our enemy's heads, said Rapra. Cain asked his creator, am I my brother's coat of many colors, said Askemiche, as Ralph grimaced. As Chloe grimaced, Ralph declared, he intended to say, I know what he intended to say, interrupted Egwort. I, I prefer the brownies version. <laughs> because his wife disobeyed, God changed Lot's male member into a pillar of salt, said Nitopari. <laughs> Ralph hastened to add, by which, he, by which he meant, I know what he meant, Egwort insisted. Kuniche began, as punishment for the Tower of Babel, God rained foreskins on Sodom, but before he could finish, Chloe pressed her hand against his lips, then turned to Egwort, offering him the same smile a Times critic had once called the most luminous object on the London stage, not excluding limelight. One stormy night, I was walking along the banks of the Rio Jaquetepec when of a sudden my 10,000 eyes began to spin, she said. From each orb fell scores of tiny tear-shaped lanterns streaming to earth and showing me numberless lizards and countless tortoises. And lo, I beheld ninety and two shackled men, and lo, they drew forth their swords and fell upon the reptiles. And in the glow of the lightning and the gleam of the lanterns, I beheld the blood of the beasts that it was blameless. No, them creatures are all hellspawn, 
Egwar protested. Governor Stopsack showed me a letter from Bishop Wilberforce. The great Winnowin will be a kick in the teeth of the devil himself. Wilberforce has scandaled, has slandered the uncantatus fauna, said Chloe. His theology cometh, offendeth your creator. You must join me in thwarting the slaughter. Egwort scratched his head vigorously as if to recruit every brain cell into interpreting the prophet's words. No, what I gotta do, I gotta see the brownie's boat up close. If I judge it to be the true Genesis Ark, I'm a-thinking that my thoughts will become the clearer. You may visit the covenant at your earliest convenience. With one hand, Egwort brought the Book of Mormon to his chest, as if applying a poultice, using his free hand to brush Chloe's sleeve. Art thou truly a heaven-sent messenger? She laughed and said, I am what I am. It's the end of the scene. to find out if she foils this dastardly plot. Well, I think you're just going to have to buy the, the book. <laughs> that was great. Thank, thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Ken. And uh, thanks to all of you for, uh, for coming tonight. Uh, KGB is held on the third Wednesday of every month. Fantastic fiction. Hope you can join us. As I said before, books are for sale in the back. Have a drink. Hang around, get the book signed, and we'll see you next month. Thank you so much for coming. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.